0: Welcome to the Modern Man Podcast with Tom Hicks and John DeVito. Modern Merrowmen is a podcast on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. We're hosting a weekly conversation along the Goths that church leaders and Christian laypeople will rightly divide the word of truth. And Tom, we are once again together. It's great to be back, brother. And one more time, we have Richard Barcellus to continue uh, what's really to me been a, a wonderful discussion on the covenant of works, both the importance of it and defending it against some of the uh, questions and critiques that have been leveled against it. Uh, but today we're going to hopefully move a little bit more into the practical implications and of it and, and what difference does all of this make uh, in our ministry and in our lives. So, uh, But before we do, again, for those who maybe haven't heard uh, our previous episodes, Tom, uh, we introduce Richard Barcells for us one more time.
1: Yeah, we have the honor of having Dr. Richard Barcellus with us. He is the pastor of Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Palmdale, California, and he's the author of a number of books, including Getting the Garden Right, Trinity and Creation, In Defense of the Decalogue, The Family Tree of uh, Reformed Biblical Theology, and The Lord's Supper as a Means of Grace. Uh, Rich, it's great to have you with us again.
2: Thanks for having me. All right. Well,
0: uh, you know, as, as we've had these previous discussions, I've been enjoying them. Uh, but as we consider once more this uh, biblical teaching, the doctrine of the covenant of works, what do you see then as the dangers of rejecting the doctrine of the covenant of works?
2: Well, uh, I think first of all, um, and I don't mean this in a cheeky way, but I'm going to have to assume people have listened to previous ones. If you reject it, it I don't think it does justice to what Scripture teaches. Uh, but drilling down a little more in your the answer to your question, more to the point, rejecting the covenant of works, um, I, I think, has a tendency to make the work of Christ occur in a vacuum that is cut off from its full and proper context. So I would say the better we understand the identity and vocation of the first Adam, the fuller our understanding of the identity and the vocation of the last Adam will be. And I, for me, that has come uh, by virtue of wrestling with this doctrine of the covenant of works. Now, for example, we could put, I could say this, though ancient Israel can be understood as a corporate Adam, God's people and God's place under God's rule kind of thing, who our Lord is and what our Lord does is conditioned upon, first of all, and primarily Adam's identity and vocation, not Israel's. When you have a robust doctrine of the covenant of works, you don't interpret the work of Christ in a vacuum. You don't interpret the work of Christ as a you know, fulfilling Israel's calling exclusively or as an end in and of itself, but you go back to the garden. And I think that's extremely important. Mm. And then I would say, third, uh, you know, before I say this, any, any, got any questions or you want to chew on that a little?
1: So far, so good, brother. Press okay. on. Okay.
2: All right. Well, I, I think third, rejecting it has a tendency to confuse justification and sanctification. I I say this because some who deny the covenant of works tend to conflate justification with sanctification, at least sometimes. And this can be a great deterrent to Christian assurance. It can also produce law-heavy preaching and duty-bound hearers for the wrong reasons. Our hearers, our dear brothers and sisters in Christ, are duty-bound, okay? Uh, We believe in the third use of the law, okay? But not unto life, not unto justification. And I've seen some who deny the covenant of works, or sometimes are fuzzy on it, conflate the two, justification and sanctification, confuse God's people, bring... uh, discouragement and despair and a lack of assurance on people that ought to be that ought to not to be, um, in that state. So those are, those are some of my thoughts about that.
1: Thank you very much, brother. Uh, I have another question kind of along the same lines of rejecting the doctrine of covenant of works on the flip side. Uh, if, if a pastor, We're not to understand the doctrine of works. Do you think it's possible for him to veer into preaching the covenant of works as the gospel? You've already sort of touched on this in relation to justification and sanctification, but could you give us examples of maybe what that would look like or sound like for a pastor to preach the covenant of works as the gospel inadvertently just because he doesn't understand how to distinguish the covenant of works and the covenant of grace?
2: Yeah. Distinguish. That's a great word. You return. You? <laughs> That's right. We distinguish. Yeah. Well, you know, if you look at the, the, uh, the situation in Genesis 2, God coming to Adam, revealing these positive laws to him. And if you say, look, this is a gracious arrangement. God acts in grace toward his creatures. If Adam would have obeyed, he would have got a reward. The gospel comes to you as a law, requiring you to obey it, and the reward is heaven. So there's a there's a very flat reading there, of redemptive history, or some people call it mono-covenantalism, um, where we're just in a kind of a revised or a new covenant of works. Um, although you know Jesus might have taken care of our guilt, just attaining of righteousness, our our obedience to law, at least in part, has to do with us, uh, unto justification. So, um, that's my answer. I just forgot the question.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think think that's helpful. Uh, Maybe then on the flip side, what role should the covenant of works play? In our preaching and ministry, if we don't want to fall into that kind of error where right. we're robbing people of their assurance and and uh, you know ultimately taking away the the graciousness of the gospel in trying to mix in uh, mistakenly mix in our works and our uh, in our relationship with God, you know how what role should this this the covenant works play
2: then? Yeah, well, if you have a robust fully formed doctrine of the covenant of works, you'll have a robust understanding of Adam as a type of Christ. Uh, and that will play a central role in the pastor's thinking. I think it ought to in every text it comes to. So it provides uh, the condition, a, a robust doctrine of the covenant of works provides the conditions for which the gospel is necessary in the first place. The gospel is necessary not merely because I, in the 21st century, have violated the law of God. Uh, The gospel is necessary because not only am I guilty, but uh, if I'm an unbeliever, my federal head failed to attain glory. The gospel is necessary that is, a second federal head, the last Adam, is necessary because the first Adam failed to bring his seed to glory so due to a sinless son of god who represented others sinning our only hope is for god to provide another sinless son of god who represents others to deal with our twofold problem and that is our guilt and our and our lack of obedience unto glory and this is what the gospel you know, says exactly happened. So I think that makes it very important in our preaching because I, I still preach the necessity of obedience from, for Christians. Um, but the ground or basis for that is grace, is thankfulness, is praise. Um, and do I preach duty? Yes, I preach duty, you know, obligations to do what God says. But the grounds for that. And the motivation for it is not guilt, but gratitude. And I think very, the whole tenor of a ministry can be fouled up. And I really think um, for many years, probably about 10 in my 30 years of ministry, I, I, I think I was confused on these things. Um, and, and And it affected my preaching in a bad way. I think I tried to scare people into you know, into sanctification and stuff like that. And that's just, that kind of a ministry is overbearing and will, uh, I don't think it produces grateful Christians at all. It produces um, timid, scared uh, Christians who, you know, who do what, what's right, but not for always for the right reasons. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank and you, and brother.
0: That's why uh, we have you as one of the, professors at, at our seminary to help equip pastors to have this robust understanding and to then effectively uh, shepherd the sheep of God with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'm grateful for your ministry at the seminary as well, of, of course, in, in my own life. Um, but uh, one, you know, one of the things that's we, we always good to, to ask, as uh, Tom and I, and I'm sure many people that listen to us, enjoy a reading and the benefit that comes from reading, uh, besides your books, which we'd obviously recommend, uh, both uh, Getting the Garden Right as well as your shorter work on the uh, Covenant of Works, what are some helpful resources uh, you'd recommend for people to grow in their understanding of the Covenant of Works and continue developing some of the, the things that we've drawn out here in our conversation over the last few episodes?
2: Um, that's a uh, really good question. Sam Renahan's uh, The Mystery of Christ is very helpful. John Fesco's Last Things First has some sections on the Covenant of Works that are very helpful. Uh, Fesco has a new, uh, very expensive academic work on the history uh, of the Covenant of Works. Um, I believe I read a pre-pub edition of that like five years ago. I'm gonna have to buy the have to save up to buy this book, but uh, I would recommend Fesco's book, uh, even though I haven't read it in its current form. I, I read it in its one of its first forms. John Owens works in various places, and I'm thinking specifically of uh, his his piece on a day of sacred rest in volume two of the Hebrews series, um, especially what he calls Exorcitation, five on the Lord's Day, and you might think, well, that's the Sabbath, that's the Lord's Day. What does that have to do with the covenant? works. John Owen does a fabulous job showing that the Lord's Day is a symbol, present symbol, uh, of our Lord's entering the rest preferred but never attained by Adam or Israel, Hebrews four, 3 and 4. Owen shows that eschatology was embedded in protology through the rest proffered in the covenant of works. And when I, when I realized that was in Owen, it wasn't the first time I read that. I read that volume on the day of sacred rest in like 1994, I think it was, three or four. Um, and then I read it again in 2016. And I'm looking at my notes, the notes I wrote back in the 90s. I'm going, I didn't know what I was reading. I had no idea what's important here, (laughs) I thought I did, you know, but Owen shows that soteriology is calculated to bring many sons to glory, rest, via the works, the work, not of Adam the first, but Adam the last. Now some people can say, well, I thought Gerhardus Voss is the one that figured that out, Mm. sorry, Ah, uh, Voss resuscitated a lot of this stuff, but it's in the it's in the old guys. I would say Nehemiah Cox, in From Adam to Christ, he has a good section. Francis Turretin, you know Thomas Boston, Bovink. Inc. Uh, and I already mentioned Voss, but he Voss picks up on the the eschatology of the covenant works theme in Paul's writings, a little in his biblical theology, but Paul the Pauline eschatology is the one where he really does it, and that's a pretty technical. Uh, technical read. Very technical, matter of fact. So that's off the top of my head, that's some of the stuff that's helped me the most.
0: That's great. And of course, we want to encourage everybody who's listening not to um, only look at contemporary authors and what they have to share, but of course, uh, to go back to the the wealth of insight and gold that you find through uh, many of our forefathers and, and the great um, theologians of, of the past and so I'm thankful you've uh, devoted yourself to um, not only understanding them and how they've valued uh, you valued them in your ministry but also uh, that, that in a sense you're uh, helping people today better understand the, these insights uh, that that for many of us we we haven't heard before we we're just not familiar with so uh, appreciate your ministry brother yeah
2: hey John. Um, yeah, can I say something about how I write? I think one reason why I'll never have a bestseller is because I write books to convince me that what I think I'm writing is the truth. <laughs> and if you kind of think like me and have a similar background, stuff like that, you know, the books might be a little more helpful. But if you don't, it's like, huh? But I write to try to convince myself, and it just happens to be that, it, you know, living in the theological climate that we do, a lot of us were influenced by dispensationalism, and and a, not not primarily from dispensationalism, but also a form of scripture interpretation or hermeneutics that would have never brought to fruition the ancient creeds, confessions, and catechisms of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so I write to convince myself, and I, I think it, that people that enjoy my books are, are probably in a similar theological and, and ecclesiastical climate that I'm in. Um, you know, there's a theological culture that we all live in, and I'm trying to, in my own thinking, I've been challenged. I've had to change the way I think. I've had to change my theological culture. Not my convictions, but my culture and the way I do things, the way I do theology, um, and I hope that's helpful for others. I think it is. I know it is sometimes, um, certainly not all the time.
0: <laughs> well, it's, it's, again, been very helpful to m- me and in, in my ministry, and I know to Tom as well. And so, Amen. It's been great having you with us, and I uh, look forward to the next time we're able to get together. But we thank you for joining us, and thank you, everyone, for listening to the Modern Maryland Podcast on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. If you'd like to know more about CBTS, please visit us online at cbtseminary.org at cbtseminary.org.